Возлюбленная Богом Церковь, начиная наше богослужение пред Господом, встанем, пожалуйста, и утвердим обетование, относящееся к предверию нашей надежды, да воцарится воскресение Христова в наших телах. Склоним наши головы в молитве. Дорогой Небесный Отец, во имя Иисуса Христа, мы благодарны имени Твоему Святому за вновь представленную привилегию быть на месте всем, которое очертила десница Твоя для поклонения Святому имени Твоему. И ныне позволь наследию Твоему во имя крови завета подняться на вершины для нас недосягаемые и сокрушить всякое бремя и запинающий нас грех. Да будут прокляты в этом служении, как и прежде, все дела дьявола, болезни, нищета, преждевременная смерть, демоническая зависимость, всевозможные страхи, депрессии, разрушение, косность, невежество – все это да отступит от шатров святого народа Твоего. И ныне встань, Господи, на место покоя Твоего Ты и ковчег могущества Твоего, и да облекутся святые Твои спасением Твоим, и да возрадуются пред лицом Твоим. Дай нам больше от Духа Твоего, пропитай нас Духом Твоим святым, позволь нам найти светлое лицо Твое. Я представляю это служение в Твои божественные руки, веди его рукою превознесенную, великий Бог, Отец, Сын, Дух Святой. Аминь. Да благословит вас Господь, можете садиться.
Matthew chapter 25, verses 1-13. through The proverb about the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no, no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out and meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went out to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. This is a, uh, a parable that is familiar to us, and it is preached quite often by many different preachers from different pulpits. They talk about it. And we know that in, in this this proverb that there is, um, there is a decree that the rapture, rapture will be accompanied with a certain sign. The fact that the groom is company, the, the groom is coming. There will be knowledge. There will be a revelation of the fact that he is coming. That rapture will come soon. All of the events of the world, all of the political, religious, will come to a kind of point where to the church it will be known to the wise and the foolish that the bridegroom is coming. And it will be accepted by all virgins. The criteria for preparation will be burning lamps. Pay attention. Not evangelism, not the use of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, not virtues, uh, not uh, good deeds, I should say, but burning lamps, which is referring to a spirit born of God that burns. It burns because there is oil there that is the fruit of His Spirit. The Spirit of a man is a lamp of the Lord searching all the inner depths of his heart. Proverbs 20, 27. Proverbs 13, 9 says, The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will put out. Apostle Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 12, verses 11 through 12. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I want to focus on something specifically here. In order for our spirit to burn, it's necessary to have diligence, and we know what diligence is. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, it says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor, nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You see here, 
Not cold or hot. We know that to be cold is to be dead to sin, and to be hot is to be alive to God. Because you are neither cold nor hot, because you are not dead to sin, and because you um, because your lamp is dimming, only upon a burning lamp can we test or are we able to test, examine all the depths of our heart. Not our neighbor, not the church around us, not our church, not our pastor, but our own lamp, the depths of our own heart. It is at the moment of, it, it'll turn out uh, that for a certain amount of saints, instead of their spirits burning, their lamps will be dimming, there will be panic, and they're going to um, try to blame it on those whose spirits burn, and those who say, so that you do not have any lack for us and you. Go to the seller and purchase it for yourself. From this answer, it becomes clear that to gain oil is tied to a certain price. We must pay a certain price. Who should pay this price? Those, or who should we pay this price to? Those who sell it. There are sellers of this oil. For some reason, they didn't turn to these sellers previously. Oil in this circumstance, uh, to say that it is the Holy Spirit is not quite true because, of but because oil and Scripture, we're looking at the union of two instances that stand before the God of all the earth. This is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And therefore, oil symbolizes the anointing Word of God that is anointed by the Holy Spirit. So those who sell the oil are those who have an anointing, who have a revelation, whose Word is living. As one and the same person are going to read the same Word, it will simply just take it and read a verse, and you are going to see a big difference. When one reads it, this is going to be something living. You're going to have many different questions that arise. When another one reads it, you won't have anything that will arise. You are going to yawn, and this will be like the dead letter, whether he reads it with expression or without expression. The salt is in the fact that whether or not God's power, God's presence will be present there, or whether or not it won't be. Of course, sometimes there might be a false fear, and the false spirit might also cause a reaction. Some people have curiosity, what's going to be right now? Because this false spirit, just like the Holy Spirit, produces, uh, acts upon a person with a supernatural power. And I saw people who looked with greedy eyes at those preachers who speak lies. At first I thought, why? Why do they have such greedy eyes? Why do they listen to these eyes so greedily? Because there is present a supernatural power that replaces the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, it's very dangerous to understand and to see. Um, we must know who has this word, who we must go and purchase the oil from. Let us read Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6 to verify this thought. And he said to me, so the angel who is showing the vision to Zechariah said, What do you see? So I said, I am looking. There is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the lamp seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? 
I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. So you see here, my word is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. So, two mighty instances that stand before the God of all the earth, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. We must never forget that the Holy Spirit must be accepted, but, but sorry, one can accept the Holy Spirit but not be led by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit demonstrates his activity only in the limits of the commandments of God. And if these commandments are somehow not accepted or are distorted, then this is an atmosphere for the activity of the spirit of delusion. The seven, the seven pipes to the seven lamps are saints who are, who are part of the fivefold ministry through which God sends his anointed word, who are the lips of God. And in order to accept this word in the format of oil into the vessel of our heart, one must pay a certain price. First, it is necessary to accept the one who sells this word. If we desire to use the word, but at the same time, we do not accept the one through whom this word is given to us, it is never going to be transformed into oil, into oil in our vessels. Accepting first we must dedicate ourselves to the Lord and then to the seller and we must honor God in tithes and offerings so that we separate to him our first fruits. When we give what is holy in the face uh, to the seller, we receive a right to meet with Christ. Matthew 23, 39 says, For I say to you, shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew chapter 23, verse 39. So blessed is the one who has come in the name of the Lord, whom God has sent in his name. Therefore, he who comes in the name of the Lord is a person who is sent by God, placed by God, anointed by God. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 5 says, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministry to the saints, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. They gave themselves to this doesn't mean in the literal sense we must listen to everything that man says you must define the seller by how he speaks if he speaks in the limits of the word and he does not distort it if he doesn't add to it then this person is sent by God but if he begins to lie to begin to to, run around the pulpit as if he's a monkey. This isn't just pulpit, this is an altar where each movement must be thought out. An unfaithful movement is death if truly the Lord dwells there. But if he's not there, of course, you can run around like a monkey, scream, put your hands in your pockets and walk around saying, hey, you, this always shocked me. How can 
kings and priests be, be so disrespected saying, hey you, can you hear me? Say rock. Say this, say that. This is people there. This is them trying to take people under control. Baseless repetition is unnecessary. You don't need to say this baselessly. Repeat. Tell the people of the Lord, tell them of the power of God, about the inheritance. Tell them about the kingdom of God. This is very important. Don't copy one another. Never copy one another. When God begins to act through man, he acts individually through another man. God will act in a completely different way and nothing will be the same. There will be one spirit and there will be the boundaries of Scripture. A person will not exit out of the limits and he will not distort the Word of God for the benefit of his flesh, that he satisfies his own flesh and his own desires and trying to justify this by Scripture. We are going to honor God right now to worship him when we honor him in tithes and honor, tithes and offerings. This is a very important part in which we acknowledge him as kings of king, king of kings and lord of lords, as a priest, under the order of Melchizedek, and we express our love to him. Please stand and let us sing together. Our worship to God, without offerings in our hands, without separation from our separating these tithes for God, our offerings will not be accepted by God. If you want to turn to me, says the Lord, turn to me, you'll say, how do we turn to you? Very simple, bring all the tithes into my home so that my home may have food. You see where this begins from? Tithes. Therefore, we begin our service with worship, tithes and offerings. Now, I will gladly remind you that each time Israel had offered and honored God with tithes and offerings in the temple, either in the sanctuary or the tabernacle of Moses, uh, they were called to raise their hands on their offerings and to proclaim one unique proclamation that they were faithful to for thousands of years. We, being that same Israel, tied to that same root, drinking from the same tree, will do the same thing. Please raise your right hand, a symbol of your righteous act, over your offerings and pray along with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I have separated the tithes from my home and brought them into your home so that your home may have food. I do not give impurely. I do not give in sorrow. I do not give for the dead. I rejoice that I have the privilege to express my love and to acknowledge your authority. And according to your word, I ask you right now, May your heavenly windows be opened and may your windows come down abundantly upon your redeemed nation. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen, amen. May the Lord bless you. You may be seated.
твою жало у ад, где победа твоя эхом с голгопы звучало свершилась содрогнула земля как бог мог смотреть на страдания что сын принимал на кресте, А место вдруг солнце сияние, И тьма отцарилась везде. Он воскрес, он воскрес, 
have a Bible, you can open along with me a familiar place of scripture to us. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not go. And I placed a watchman before you, saying, Hear the trumpets before you, but they said, We will not hear. And so hear you peoples, and know what will be with them. Hear, O earth, I will bring, for they do not, they have not heard my words and have violated my law. The rest of that place of scripture talks about. It's very unfortunate, but a majority of Christians walk in this very same direction. Yes, they, in a literal sense, don't say we reject, we won't hear, we won't listen, but they don't know the sound of the trumpet. They don't know the call of the trumpet. They don't know whom God has established, and they choose teachers for themselves. Therefore, our topic remains return to the ancient path of goodness. On one hand, the reason why God calls his nation to return to the ancient path of goodness is comprised of the fact that at the end of this ancient path, it is not just us who will find rest, but God also. Because a person's rest is found, contained, and dwells only in God's rest. 
Therefore, the ancient path of goodness is, first, the unique relationship of God with man and man with God that are called to attract favor and bring one another to rest. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 1, For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until her righteousness goes forth as, right, as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. So here we clearly see that rest, or God's rest, the rest of man, lies in one another. This one won't be at rest until the other one will, the other one won't be at rest until he will. And second, returning to, returning to the ancient path of goodness is called to show a person that he who stood at the beginning of this ancient path of goodness is the Alpha and Omega, and all in all is God. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and last. Revelation 22, 13. As the foundation of our study of the ancient path of goodness, at the basis of which will stand the Son of Man as Alpha and Omega, we turn to the words of Apostle Paul written in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1-2, through 2, which, according to the mercy and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, formulated the ancient path of goodness and the contents of the order present in the teaching of Christ. In studying this place of Scripture, we decided to use a more perfect and closer-to-the-truth version of this translation. Therefore, sprinkling ourselves with the reigning teachings of Christ, and having been clothed in the armor of light contained in the reign of this teaching, let us go on to perfection and build ourselves into the house of God, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Four base teachings. Each of the four reigning teachings contain in themselves a triplicity of functions that yield to the unearthly order of the kingdom of heaven, which together define the role and purpose of the twelve teachings of Christ who came in the flesh, demonstrating his royal authority in the twelve hours of the day for the invisible dimension the image of which was contained in the twelve watchmen of the ancient path of goodness in the twelve gates of heavenly Jerusalem, on which were engraved the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel, and the twelve foundations of the walls of heavenly Jerusalem, on which were engraved the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. In a certain format, as much as God and the level of our faith have allowed us, we have already studied the first three teachings and their purposes. And we've stopped to study the mystery of the triplicity that is contained in the foundational structure, structures of eternal judgment, which in scripture is presented in the dimension of the eastern side of heavenly Jerusalem, comprised of three gates. And so, uh, the doctrine of eternal judgment, just as in the other three teachings, contains in itself three levels of the will of God. This is the good will, the acceptable will, and the perfect will. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In their union, the functions of the three levels of the will of God are yielded in Scripture as the creation of righteousness and the works of justice and the creation of sanctification and the works of holiness. 
He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Revelation chapter 22, verses 11 through 12. Why did we pay attention in the beginning to the sound of the trumpet? If people were to hear the sound of a trumpet, would they have, would they earn righteousness or doing actions would they become holy? They, they're saying that in order to become holy, you need to do holy actions. In order to be righteous, you need to do righteous actions. This is the unfortunate essence of, of these days because we know that in order to practice righteousness, one must be righteous and in order to be sanctified, one must be holy. And we know that we receive righteousness as a gift of grace and we are born from God and by, the, by this fact we are holy. That is why we can be sanctified. We don't need to earn righteousness and we don't need to earn holiness. And with all our lack and falls, we remain righteous and holy. Only upon the union of the creation of righteousness, the creation of sanctification, can these two actions present in one another and for one another the legal platform for their legal expression. Because to practice righteousness and to be sanctified are different things, and only in this union can they represent the doctrine of eternal judgment. We noted that acknowledging the will of God is a sacred mystery that is found beyond the limits of our rational abilities that are called to occur between God and man and man and God in the dimension of the spirit through the mutual act in which God and man unite as one and become one spirit. The mind can't comprehend this and therefore the mind stands far from this. First Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. The fulfillment of the will of God and the practice of righteousness and sanctification is always an expression of love toward God with simultaneous hatred toward lawlessness and the wicked, who are carriers of this lawlessness and evil. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 8. My heritage is to me like a lion in the forest. It cries out against me, therefore I have hated it. Heritage are, heritage are those people who God has redeemed, but because they didn't hear the sound of the trumpet and they refused to go toward the ancient path of goodness, they cried out against God as a lion, and God says, and therefore I have hated them. And therefore to love God means to love everyone and everything that God loves and hate everything and everyone that God hates. Otherwise, we will believe that we should love everyone without exception, as many foolish people preach. This will no longer be love for God, but a kind of parody of love. The doctrine of eternal judgment with the contents of the good, acceptable, perfect will is a triumphant accord in the reading teaching of Jesus Christ. 
in a certain format together in the doctrine of eternal judgment, which contains in itself three levels of the will of God, have already studied the first two levels in the powers of the good and acceptable will. Therefore, let us turn to studying the third level, expressing the powers of the perfect will, which is the omega and concluding reigning teaching of Jesus Christ. On the wall of heavenly Jerusalem, comprised of twelve precious stones, the doctrine of eternal judgment, expressed in the level of the perfect will, is made of the precious amethyst stone. Revelation 21, 14, and 20. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb, the twelve foundation amethyst. Revelation chapter 21, verses 14 and 20. In scripture, the image of the wall representing a person is an image of perfection in which a person represents the image of the Son of God. And so the image of every precious stone in the twelve foundations of the walls of heavenly Jerusalem is an image of a certain component that yields the character of a good heart, without which our heart cannot be called good. The precious amethyst stone is the most expensive variety of quartz. It has been valued since ancient times and, according to biblical descriptions, was inserted into the pectoral or in the breastplate of the high priest Aaron among twelve precious stones. There are only two versions of the appearance of the name of this mineral. Translated from ancient Greek, it means sober or virgin from which we can conclude that when God builds a relationship with a person through the powers contained in his perfect will, then he will address a person with a voice emanate, emanating from the innermost mystery of unearthly amethyst, which on this foundation will represent the name of the apostle Judas Iscariot. Matthew chapter 10 verses 2 through 4. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The twelfth is Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. We have already noted that it is the name of the apostle written on each of the twelve foundations of the wall of heavenly Jerusalem that yields and characterizes this foundation. And in this case, the powers contained in the name of Judas Iscariot reveal in this foundation the nature and purpose of the perfect will of God. Judas Iscariot poses a number of difficult questions before a person who does not understand the wisdom of God, namely, how can Jesus choose him as a disciple and trust him with the treasury and the gospel if he knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him? To resolve this issue, I will have to make one remark, and we will again return to the authority of the name written on the twelfth foundation of the wall of heavenly Jerusalem. John chapter 6, verses 70 through 71. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Thus we learn that the father of Judas from the Jewish village of Kerioth was a certain Jew named Simon. By the way, exactly the same questions arise when it comes to the fallen cherub. How could God, who originally knew and foresaw the future, each of the celestials created by him, could allow a third of his servants to defect? There are two reasons 
and three answers. The first answer is that every name associated with God and His kingdom is a dignity, a calling, and a place in the structure of His kingdom, which can only be taken by those who are worthy of this place. And if this someone does not correspond and leaves his place, then he loses his dignity and his place in the kingdom of heaven. And then this place or this name is inherited by another, the one who is worthy of it. Therefore, if he falls, the name remains. The thing isn't in man, the thing is, is, isn't in man, it's in the name and the dignity that he had. Revelation 3.11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Crown is the dignity, it is the name. When Saul ceased to meet the requirements of his place, which endowed him with the dignity of the throne among the people chosen by God, God rejected him and put another in his place. God didn't reject the throne, the throne remained. The dignity of the throne remained, it was just man who left. He didn't meet the requirements of this throne. And therefore, the fact that the name of Judas Iscariot remains on the twelfth foundation, defining the place and dignity that he has lost, speaks only of the fact that his place was taken by someone else, a lion from the tribe of Judah, in order to appear as the royal omega of his teaching. So this, is, this place was taken by Christ. He was in the beginning, and he will be in the end. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. The second answer, if at creation God endowed angels and humans only with animal instincts devoid of sovereignty expressed in a free and independent rational opportunity to choose between good and evil and between death and life, then they would not be individuals as a result of which this would not have happened. But God wanted to be surrounded by such servants and children who, like him, would have equal to him sovereign rights and could, like him, choose the dignity of being his servant or not. In fact, one of the virtues of God is servant, who gladly and voluntarily serves his creation because he loved them with, with eternal love. Love that does not find pleasure in selfless service to a loved one cannot be called love. To serve is to stand guard over the interests of a loved one and please not yourself but a loved one, as Christ once said about this. Now there was a dispute among them as to which one of them would be considered the greatest, and he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is the greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table, or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. With all this, it should be noted that by virtue of his nature, God will serve only those who will serve him. We considered in this case are not his creation and therefore cannot be the object of his eternal love. In fact, God did not create Satan. He created the cherub who transformed himself into an enemy of God. Therefore, as soon as the cherub and the angels who followed him stopped serving God and hated him, God stopped serving them and hated them. 
Likewise, God did not create wicked people. They made themselves that way, and it was their choice behind which Satan stood. The wicked are those people who were previously saints, but then left their place and went their own ways, despising their dignity in the name they have. By virtue of which, God also left them, stopped serving them, and rejected them from his face. God loves and serves only those people who love him and prove their love to him by serving him and his children. Therefore, those people who know that God exists and do not serve him are regarded by the scriptures as haters of God, by virtue of which God, in his turn, hates them and will not serve them. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 to 10. I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So the hatred of God towards the wicked is spread out that the third and the fourth generation of children God despises of those who are children of the wicked, but God loves those and those who are his and that his, his love spreads to thousands. God demonstrates his love in such a way and hatred in such a way. But for people who do not know God, he will do and did everything so that they can learn about him said that they do not have an excuse and only after they learn about him and reject him he will stop serving them and they will be rejected by him this we can read in romans chapter 1 verses 19 to 20 because what may be known of god is manifest in them for god has shown it to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. When people look at all that they see, God has created them in such a way that they all have a question that comes up. Where is this tree from? Where is the earth from? Where are the stars from? And of course, it's impossible to lie to man. You can lie him with time that it has appeared on itself, but a person matures and he understands that nothing can appear on its own that the laws of the universe cannot be without a legislator, without a lawmaker. How is it that there is laws but not a lawmaker? How there is an art, art and not an artist? And therefore, God says they are without excuse. At one time, Jesus told his disciples that those people who want to serve him should follow the example of how he serves his father and his disciples, and that the reward of such a ministry will be that where he is, they will be there too. And that's not all, but that for such a service, they will be honored in the same way by his heavenly Father. John 12, 26, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. In one of his parables about the kingdom of heaven, Jesus determined that the essence of our service to God consists in vigilance before his countenance expressed in the girded loins and in burning lamps.
This is service. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, and that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat, and will come and serve them. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. I don't know how this will be, but this will be something so, uh, so supernatural and so remarkable. And even now, God serves us, but we don't notice this quite as easily. But he, in the literal sense, will be girded and will serve his people when we come home. Apostle Paul showed that the service to God can be perceived by God only through co-working with His grace and the subject of His gospel word in the Holy Spirit, which in their totality represent the grace of Christ. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through 29. And the third answer. The unfaithfulness and betrayal of some is a test of loyalty for others. Having been tested by the unfaithfulness of people who previously were one with us, we receive immunity in our nature against any lawlessness and arbitrariness. It is with this immunity, it is this immunity that will be an eternal guarantee both for God and for us that when we inherit a new heaven and new earth, nothing like this will happen, neither with the angels nor with us, that in eternity there will not be any catastrophes, and not one cherub, not one angel, not one child of God will never challenge God, because they are going to have immunity. In this immunity, we, uh, we obtain when some are unfaithful and we remain faithful. Now let's turn to examining the name of Judas Iscariot Simon written on the 12th foundation of the wall of heavenly Jerusalem, which was taken up by someone else who was worthy of it. The name Judah, as you all know, means to praise Yahweh, while the name Simon means to hear or listen. Judah Simon. In their totality, these two names in the 12th foundation of the wall of heavenly Jerusalem will mean empowered to offer praise to God in the format of God's perfect will that God will hear. In other words, the praise that God hears will serve as an opportunity for him to carry out the final judgment, which is not subject to change and appeal as a just retribution for the good sown and for the evil sown. With all this, I would like to draw our attention to one regularity contained in the sequence of names. Specifically, the name in front is always the leader and the name following it is always the follower. For example, in the first foundation of the wall of heavenly Jerusalem, the name Simon, meaning to hear or listen, is the leader, as it stands in front, while his father's name Jonah, meaning dove, is the follower, Simon Jonah. When Christ, turning to Simon Peter, said, You are a stone, and on the stone I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, the original text from which this phrase was translated may note that this stone is Christ himself in Peter. In other words, saying, Jesus said, You will re represent me in the dignity of a cornerstone. 
as written out there for you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Ephesians 2, 19-22. See, this was Christ. He spoke of himself from Peter. You are a, you are a stone. And there was Simon who was leading those names. On the 11th foundation, you will remember we talked about it not long ago, is the name Simon the Canaanite, also like in the first name, Simon, standing in front, is the leader, and the name Canaanite, or Zealot, standing behind it, was a follower. But in the 12th foundation of the wall, in the name Judas Simon, leading, in the, leading is the name Judas, meaning praise Yahweh, while the name of his father Simon, standing behind it, is the follower. The difference is that if in the first two cases the name Simon pointed to the state of a human heart to hear the preached word, what the Spirit says to the churches, then in the twelfth foundation the name Simon, which stands behind the name Judas, tells us that in this case God hears the prayer of a person who is able to communicate with him in the format of a kind of praise that meets the requirements of his perfect will. Here, we, it's not we who hear, but God who hears us, not we who hear God, but God who hears us in this twelfth foundation. Because only through praise built on the requirements of the perfect will, God will bring the fulfillment to fulfillment the final decree over the fallen angels and wicked people. This is a decree that cannot be altered since it is the just and eternal retribution for the evil that was sown, and simultaneously it is the great reward for the good that was sown. Only in this union and this sequence do these two dignities bring us this is talking about Judas and Simon, could bring us into the level of the perfect will and make us partakers of those powers that are contained in the perfect will of the Heavenly Father. It is specifically the perfect will of the Heavenly Father that contains in itself the eleven previous foundations of the walls of heavenly Jerusalem and yields the righteousness of God and His perfect judgments and His holiness as His absolute separation from sin. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 6 through 7. The very arrangement of the twelfth foundation in our heart, which endows us with the ability to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, becomes possible when we are born to the throne and we make with God the covenant of rest in fire baptism. Because it is in the covenant of rest that we find all the conditions and instructions that relate to the powers of the perfect will. And let us remember that the functions contained in the powers of the perfect will can flow only upon the cooperation of man with God in the boundaries of this same perfect will. And so the character of the perfect will, which is yielded in the name Judas Simon, Iscariot, on this twelfth foundation, represents a lion from the tribe of Judah in the dignity of the name Omega as the true face of the one who has fulfilled the will of the Heavenly Father in whom we, thanks to cooperation with the power of the Holy Spirit, are called to be clothed in the dignity of the name Judas Simon. And in this cooperation for each of the sides, there is also a specific role that cannot be nullified or fulfilled by someone else. 
Our role is in the fact that having clothed our praise in the format of an oath, which contains the perfect will of the Heavenly Father, we in this manner proclaim the righteousness of God in His eternal and irrefutable judgment, whereas the role of God, which, who hears our praise, clothed in the format of an oath, receives the opportunity to fulfill this oath or bring this decree executed by us in His judgments that are noted in Scripture to fulfillment. And so to cooperate with God in clothing our heart in the dignity of the name Judas Simon, it is necessary for us to study the functions contained in this name as well as the role which God outlined for himself as well as for us. Considering the format of this sermon, I will limit myself to several important components in which the name Judas Simon gives the children of God the right through praise to God to fulfill the judgments of God and the boundaries of the powers of this perfect will for punishment and for salvation. The first power contained in the name Judas Simon is called to deliver and save those who are loved by God. Psalms 108 verses 3 through 6. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth, that your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand, and hear me. In these words, praise to God, glorifying Him among the nations and praising Him among the nations, is presented in the format of God's mercy, which is above heaven in truth, which reached to the clouds. And therefore, those who are loved by God are those people who, in the practice of praise, are called to exalt the mercy of God above the heavens and His truth to the clouds. Only those who cooperate their truth with the perfect will of God have the ability to exalt God above the heavens and to make His glory known over the whole earth. The perfect will of God is a kind of level of the faith of God that we can acknowledge only in the level of birth to the throne, having made with God a covenant of rest and fire baptism. In the doctrine of eternal judgment, the perfect will of God is yielded as the perfect judgments of God that are highlighted in His laws, decrees, commandments, and statutes. Specifically, the statutes of God equip and explain both the purpose of the multi-level, multi-valued, and multifunctional courts of God and the sequence of their execution in all His decrees, laws, and commandments. And thus, they build a relationship with God at the level of His perfect will. Thus, praise to God, clothed in the format of the perfect will of God, which was presented, represented by the name of Judas, was expressed and sung in a mercy that is above heaven and in truth, which reached beyond the clouds. The phrase that your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand and hear me, points to the powers of the name Simon. So when we praise God with this kind of praise, 
God hears us, and the reason why this phrase relates to the powers in the name Simon is comprised of the fact that this phrase yields the role of God, in which God, in response to praise, clothed in the format of mercy and truth, receives the opportunity to listen to us or to hear us, and thus deliver us from the, every enemy and show us his salvation. And therefore our role in the perfect will of God is to exalt him in our praise clothed in the format of mercy above heaven, and in the format of truth that reaches the clouds, so that this glory would remain over the whole earth. And the role of God in response to fulfilling our role is to deliver us from all our enemies and to save us with his right hand. In other words, when we begin to exalt the mercy of God above heaven and his truth above the clouds, and he will hear us to the extent of his perfect will and will have the opportunity to deliver us from our enemies and save us from his right hand. However, the main intrigue is how and why does the mercy of God extend above the heavens and the truth only to the clouds. After all, if we do not have such a revelation, then we will not be able to praise God to the extent of His perfect will to exalt God's mercy above heaven and His truth to the clouds. Therefore, we, we would need to explore in more detail the nature of these great phenomena and virtues that determine the nature of our Heavenly Father. And although such a goal and such a desire imparted by the Holy Spirit is present in me, I hope that God will give us time and the opportunity to explore these virtues at all levels of His will. But unfortunately, in this format, this is not taken into account, and therefore, I will be extremely brief while I try to give some definitions and guidelines in order to convey this mystery to you. First, both mercy and truth in the format of which David praised God had only one purpose, that the Beloved of God could be delivered from every enemy and in the salvation prepared for them from the creation of the world by the right hand of God. Second, both mercy and truth, which David turned into praise to God, are called to spread the glory of God over the whole earth. In Scripture, mercy and truth are the definition of the unsearchable riches of the grace of Christ. So if you take a look at what grace is, then you'll see that grace is mercy and truth. Therefore, through mercy and truth, or through the grace of God, God reveals to us the essence of the mystery that was hidden from eternity in God who created everything by Christ Jesus. Through mercy and truth, the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8-13 through 13, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery from which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. I um, am making a note here what, so that you can keep track what mercy is that is above the heavens. Take a look at who is magnified above начальством и властям на небесах на различные премудрость Божия. So it turns out that it is the church that represents the mercy of God and the wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom of God, and it is above the heavenly places. And there, таким образом начинают постигать и понимать Бога через церковь. According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. 
Pay attention, he said, Paul says, my uh, tribulations are your glory. And before we go any further, attention should be paid, paid to the final words. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. From these words that follows, that the glory of God, which is called to spread over the whole earth through mercy and truth, will spread through the sorrows of the messengers of God, the bearers of mercy and truth, which they are called to convey through the preached word. This glory God will see, this doesn't mean, this isn't referring to the glory that people will see. This is referring to the fact that God, when he sees the tribulations and the sufferings of his messengers, then for him, this is glory. And he covers the church with this glory. And Apostle Paul says, I fulfill lack with my sufferings. In the body of Christ and the very dignity of mercy in these words is presented in the wisdom of Christ, which through the church ascends above heaven and thus it becomes known to the principalities and authorities in heaven. In other words, the fame of the church in heaven becomes possible when the church becomes an instrument of mercy, an object of grace and an expression of God's mercy. As written, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth for you have magnified your word above all your name so he had seen it in the temple that this is the temple of God that represents mercy and truth says I will praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth for you have magnified your word above all your name Psalms 138.2 here it's referring to this mercy that God has magnified above all his name in the face of the church showing her a product of mercy, an object of mercy. It follows that only thanks to his holy temple, we can cognize his mercy in which he clothed us in the garments of righteousness and in his truth through which he made us free from sin. That is why all the paths of the Lord to those who keep the covenant of God and His revelations are presented in mercy and truth. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep His covenant and His testimonies. Psalms 25.10 God justifies man by His mercy and sanctifies according to His truth. Sanctify them by their truth, Christ prayed for His disciples before giving Himself up to death for them. Therefore, the mercy of God is called to justify a person, while the truth is called to sanctify him. It is these two phenomena in their totality that make man the holiness of God in his property. The fact that truth finds its dwelling in the clouds suggests that it is the clouds of God that are called to represent his truth. As far as we know, clouds in scripture are the image of righteous people justified by God by his grace. As it is written, we have around us a great cloud of witnesses. Throughout all of scripture, it is the cloud that is the bearer of the abiding glory of God, which is called by God to cover and sanctify the people chosen and beloved by God. Whenever God wanted to show his glory, he showed it in a cloud. For example, a cloud in the form of a pillar of fire at night and during the day in the form of a cloud accompanied Israel for 40 years in the desert. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John 8, 31-32 to believe in Christ and be justified, it is necessary to turn the mercy of the Lord upon ourselves, but to enter into the freedom of Christ and thus to be free from sin, it is necessary to have knowledge of his truth. 
he already turns to those who accepted him toward the righteous. Now he says, now you are righteous, yet you are bound by sin. Strange, right? A person can't believe that a person, a righteous man, can be bound by sin, bound to sin. Yet Christ turned to those who believed, and if they believe and have received, and they have received justification, now he says, now in order to you be free to be freed from sin, because a sin lives in a carnal person, when we were born again, our soul remains the same. Our lust remain with us. And today, and a lot of people, they are warring. And Christ says, you need truth in order to be free. Mercy is needed to accept justification and truth is needed to be freed from sin, to be sanctified. Psalms 85 verses 9 to 13. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him, and shall make his footsteps our pathway. In this concept, grace generates truth or clothes in truth, while truth produces the peace in the relationship of God with man and man with God. Therefore, when mercy and truth meet each other, they produce righteousness and peace. It goes on to say how they are called to meet each other. Specifically, truth is called to arise, grow, or be reborn from the earth. And of course, in this case, we are talking not about ordinary land, but about good soil of the human heart in which the seed of truth is transformed through confession into the word of truth. When we proclaim the faith of our heart, at this time, truth springs up from our earth, our soil, and then righteousness or truth will come, or rather, uh, when it is said that in response to an emergence of truth from the earth, righteousness will come from heaven, it means that God will hear the truth from the earth and will creep to it and look at it, which in practice means that he, on the emergence of truth from the earth, will unite her with righteousness from heaven. And as a result of such a marital union taking place in our heart, God will give his seed in the subject of his grace or his goodness. And the good soil of our heart will bear its fruit, expressed in the creation of truth, in which a person will go before God or will have the opportunity to walk before God in the ways of his righteousness. Let not mercy and truth forsake you, but find them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. Mercy and truth, let them not forsake you. How are they not going to forsake us when we exercise them? When we have mercy upon people, when we have mercy and forgive, and when we are sanctified. Specifically, in this way, our necks will be bound. We will be led by them, mercy and truth. We will write them on the tablet of our heart, and we will find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Proverbs 20, verse 28, Mercy and truth pres preserve the king, and by loving kindness he upholds his throne. If we want to reign over ourselves, and if we want to have a throne in us, 
God wants each of us to have a throne. What is a throne? Throne is the legal right to choose good and evil, good or evil. But how do you reign on this throne? This throne must be affirmed, established. David had established his throne. Saul couldn't establish or affirm his throne. God said to him through Samuel, "Today the Lord has uh, the Lord has affirmed your kingdom, but it has been taken from you." But David understood that God had affirmed him king when God built to him, when the uh, messengers of the king of Tyre, the masons and the carpenters came and they built a house of cedar there. Cedar is a symbol of righteousness when they affirmed him in righteousness. Psalms 89 verses 14 through 17. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk with the Lord in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor our horn is exalted. Only thanks to mercy and truth. And one more place of scripture. Joshua chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. So the man answered her, Our lives for yours. The two men say this to, um, to the woman in Jericho. Our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you, then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, and she dwelt on the wall. Pay attention. We will um, have mercy on you in truth if you keep this mystery, if you don't reveal that we are uh, living in your home. The ability to hide this secret and for there to be a scarlet thread, a cord on the window that you are justified, you are righteous. If we will see that you have this evidence of righteousness, that you are justified, therefore we will show you mercy and truth when we come to destroy this land. The second power contained in the name Judas Simon is called to, through praise, clothed in the format of an oath, give God the opportunity to avenge for us, subdue our peoples under us, and deliver us from our enemies and the violent man. Psalms 18, verses 46-48. The Lord lives, blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people uh, peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lifted me up above those who rise against me. You delivered me from the violent man. You can take these places of Scripture boldly and use them in your prayer and say them with an expression expressively before God. When you begin to proclaim it, not just a place of Scripture, but as your own prayer, you will you will see what God will do to you and God is how God is going to hear you. The first two phrases: "The Lord lives, blessed be my rock." Let the God of my salvation be exalted, speaks of the presence of the powers that are contained in the dignity of the name Judah. The nature of the praise contained in these two phrases, pronounced in the format of an oath, whenever it says, 
the Lord, or let, let God, or let, it is um, in the format of an oath, is, it's designed to exalt God as a judge who made salvation and who captured captivity. The next phrase is, it is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me, lift me up above those who rise against me and delivered me from the violent man. Talks about the presence of powers containing the beauty of the name Simon which indicates the fact that God heard and drew his attention to the praise clothed in the format of this kind of oath. When we say, the Lord lives, my... Bless God, my salvation, he has been exalted. Remember in Psalms 18 also, there are these words when this is David that wrote them, when the Lord had delivered him from all of his calamities and all of his enemies. Then he says who God is for him, my um, stronghold, my fortress, my deliverer. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and so shall I be saved from my enemies. When we proclaim who God is for us and what God has done for us, this is that oath that God hears, because he hears his word. God depends on his word. He has made himself dependent not on our words, but his own word. He has magnified it and has made himself dependent. Therefore, when we say this word, then he immediately fulfills it. He wants to fulfill it. He waits for the children of God to finally pray according to his will with his words. Take the words of prayer. No person takes some kind of some kind of paper and begins to, to, to speak, but God gives him his words with his seal. And he says, I want you to write with my words, to speak with me with my words. This is very important. Therefore, when Scripture says that God heard, it means that he responded to the format of this praise by carrying out the sentence of his judgment strictly in according with those confessions that were David's hope in the faith of God that he had. Basically, God hears only those prayers which legally express his will, not any of our desires, but only his will when we express it correctly and when we have a right to express it. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We can take certain places of scriptures and say, whatever you ask will be given to you, if you take it out of context. But you can't take places of scripture out of context. You have to take all of them together. It says that all that we ask according to his will, only then we'll receive it. And whenever we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So even if we don't yet have this in our physical pocket and we can't feel it, but we know that when we ask God, he will answer us. And my healing is on its way. My freedom is on its way. And I can then thank God and I can be at rest because I, according to the wall, according to the will of God, have prayed. And I know that God has heard my prayer when I pray according to the will of God. The third power containing the name Judas Simon is called to reveal the fullness of God's salvation by offering the sacrifice of praise and observing one's own path. 
Whoever glorifies, whoever offers praise glorifies me. To him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. Psalms 50:23. In this place of scripture, in the phrase, whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct are present the powers contained in the dignity of the name Judah which means praise Yahweh. And to observe one's path means to verify and investigate to what extent our confessions correspond to the faith that we receive through hearing the preached word with our hearts. And therefore, to verify and investigate is to test the source of the origin of the contents of our praise and to verify them with the standard of God's perfect will to what extent our confessions correspond to the format of an oath that yields this perfect will. In the next phrase, to him I will show the salvation of God are present the powers contained in the dignity of the name Simon, which in this case unveils God's role of hearing and answering based on the components of our praise. The degree of salvation manifested in praise, clothed in the format of the perfect will of God, depends on the degree of our dedication, whereas the degree of our dedication depends on the degree of the will of God with which a person cooperates and in which he dwells. And our dwelling, a certain degree of the will of God depends on the degree, and our dwelling in a certain degree of the will of God depends on the degree of birth which yields a spiritual age of a person. For example, an infant in Christ dwelling in the good will of God cannot accept those spiritual things that are found in acceptable will because he considers them foolish. Due to this fact, a person born in water can only be in the degree of the good will. A person born of the Spirit can only abide in the degree of the acceptable will, while a person who is born to the throne can be in the perfect will of God, and therefore the degree of the manifestation of salvation is a certain measure of the Spirit that is given to us according to the degree of the measure of our faith, yielded by the degree of the will of God in which we abide. Furthermore, we should pay attention to the fact that sacrificing praise to God and observing our path or testing ourselves whether we are in faith really means to practice truth to be sanctified. At the same time, one should always take into account one law, that the need to offer God a sacrifice of praise is present in the powers of all three degrees of the will of God. But in every available degree of the will, praise can only pursue the goal that is yielded by the powers of this will. Praise is thanksgiving to God for specific and de definite deeds that He has done or that He personally revealed to us that He will do them in our life. For example, if a person believes that if he wants to receive something from God, it is enough just to praise God, he is deluded. After all, the faith of God comes through hearing the word of God with our heart, and therefore we are called to praise God only for those promises that he put in our hearts, which God has placed in our hearts. And then the power of praise, which will practically express the faith of our heart, will enable God to fulfill the promise that he previously laid in our heart through the preached word. But if we do not have such revelation in our hearts or such information that God has already answered this need in the dimension of our spirit, then we should not call our desire faith. Furthermore, we must know that the sacrifice of praise or the fruit of the lips glorifying God is a necessary means of communication with God, which is called prayer. A prayer that is not clothed into the format of the phrase cannot be called a prayer. Likewise, praise that is not clothed in the format of prayer cannot be called praise. Prayer clothed in the format of praise is a dialogue in which God speaks and calls and a person answers this call. 
We can observe such a dialogue when one sings or speaks the word of God while the other listens, is edified, and accepts. This is a dialogue. I speak, you listen, there's a dialogue occurring. Prayer can also be expressed when a person speaks in his heart in accordance with the will of God and God answers him explicitly. There are many ways of prayer, however, all of them are called to be performed in spirit and truth. Because true prayer, true fellowship with God takes place in worship. For example, prayer can be performed outside the temple, in the outer courtyard of the temple, in the sanctuary, and finally in the Holy of Holies. But these will be different degrees of communication depending on the level of the will of God at which you bring this prayer. And as we have uh, already said more than once, if a person is in the perfect will of God but begins to offer his prayer from the position of the outer court of the temple, then his prayer will not be heard. On the contrary, if a person is in the outer courtyard of the temple and has not yet been initiated to enter the sanctuary and tries to worship God from the position of the sanctuary, then his prayer will not be heard. A priest must pray as a priest. If David needed to pray, he always said, bring me the ephod. When Hagar had prayed, she didn't need the ephod, and God heard her without the ephod. But when David had prayed, he was a priest, and he said, Bring me the ephod, and he cried out to God, and he said, Lord, will I catch this army? Am I going to be able to overcome it? Will I find my children, my wives? And God said to him, You will find them. You will take them. You will catch up to them. Because David was a priest. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 or 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 or 7, If our desires are not the will of God which He put into our hearts, then no matter how much we ask with thanksgiving for God to fulfill such a desire, the peace of God, the subject of the mind of Christ and the Holy Spirit, which is above the mind, will not receive legal framework to observe our hearts and minds. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says, Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. We will remember all this. In order to praise God in the joy and gladness of our hearts, it is necessary to receive the light of the revelation of truth. Only after that we can approach the altar of God to the God of our joy and gladness. Psalms 43, verses 3 through 5. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. People within the perfect will, they do not need if somebody is not nearby. They don't need to pick up the phone and ask for somebody to pray for them. They begin to speak with their soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Why are you sad? Why are you so sorrowful? What, God has died? No, God is in heaven. He loves you. He has redeemed you. Be certain that everything will be okay. When I talk like this with myself, nobody can give me greater, greater comfort. 
God will bring each of you to kind of loneliness for you to learn how to uh, how to comfort your soul with the word of God. Otherwise, you won't come to the perfect will of God. Therefore, we can stay vigilant in prayer with thanksgiving only when there is something to watch over or something to guard. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Colossians 4.2 in this case, we are talking about the state of our heart in which the hope in God is laid, expressed in certain promises which we must constantly look to and which we must hold firmly regardless of external circumstances. Therefore, the sacrifice of praise expressed in thanksgiving for what God has done for us is a confession of that degree of faith in the heart which corresponds to the degree of God's will in which we abide. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith. As you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16-17. through On the part of God, to show a person complete salvation means to fulfill the confession of faith in his heart, expressed in praise, clothed in the format of an oath. Therefore, God undertakes to show us his salvation, provided that we honor God as a sacrifice of praise and observe our paths. And in order for a sacrifice of praise to honor God, it is necessary that it meet the requirements of a God-pleasing sacrifice, in which a person could bring evidence to God on the right to offer the sacrifice of praise and also specify what he thanks him for. Otherwise, as it often happens, the so-called sacrifice of praise, instead of expressing respect to God and thus gaining the salvation of God in His grace, will, as always, express our ignorance and our disobedience. Well, let this not be with us, but considering the fact that our time has come to an end, we will bow our heads and bend our knees and we will pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to your holy name for your, for your might and strength, for your word. Let your mercy be blessed for us forever and ever. May you be magnified in your Son, Jesus Christ. May your inheritance be taught how to clothe their Praise in the format of an oath so that you can hear it. You have taught us to hear you in our heart. And now teach us so that you could hear us. So that we, when we pray according to your will, so that we take your words of prayer and we can proclaim them. Because you are not yet at rest. You are not yet at rest because we are not at rest. You will not be at rest until your children are, while your children are still suffering. But you will be comforted when you see them suffering for truth, when their suffering is your glory. This will bring you comfort. We know that when we are suffering, Satan can come to us through these illnesses, allow us in these illnesses to praise your glory. For oftentimes, our illnesses, our sufferings are uh, our sowing. If we don't have sin before your countenance, we can boldly proclaim your righteousness. But if we have sin, then we can proclaim it before your countenance. Then we can confess it before your countenance. May your mercy and truth be blessed for your people in the name of Jesus Christ.
May your glory be magnified over your people. I believe that the time has come when you are going to lift up your church, lift up your mercy and truth, and you will cover her with your glory. She is going to speak and you are going to answer. When you are betrothed to her, when she will uh, grow as truth from the earth and when she begins to proclaim the faith of her heart, when she begins to search for your will, when she takes your desires as her weapon, let your mercy and truth be upon your people forever and ever. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the hand of the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now let us conclude our unchanging manifestation. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.